You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, February 24th. Thanks for you who are here. And um, so as, uh, as uh, anyone who's watched me over the last year talk about uh, the epidemic, it's been peppered or sometimes uh, fully uh, in the form of discussing rapid tests and, and at-home tests. One of the big mysteries, or frankly not really a mystery, but one of the, the big questions that comes up often with regard to testing and really changing the landscape of, of testing, uh, in particular over the foreseeable future as vaccines get rolled out, um, has been do people care? Do, will this actually be something that the American public will pick up? And so uh, with the COVID collaborative, uh, which is a, a collaborative that I'll let, uh, I'll, we'll introduce in just a moment. Uh, we took it upon ourselves to es essentially uh, do a survey of the American public and try to understand what are the feelings and, and uh, the uses that people would want to, how, how would people actually feel about having rapid tests in their homes? This is important for so many reasons for this pandemic and future. Uh, and would people actually be willing to use these uh, is it something that would actually be uh, be useful if the American government uh, expanded the access to these tests, uh, which is crucial because uh, the, the, the president uh, has made it clear that it's one of his uh, objectives is to increase access to testing, importantly, increase equitable access to testing and make it available to anyone who wants it, not just the wealthy, um, and make it a, a fast in a, in, a, in a time frame that's actually actionable by people. And so, uh, so I want to introduce Shauna Marino right now, who is um, uh, going to uh, provide some of the details uh, and the results of this survey, which uh, we haven't released uh, yet in any large way to, to anyone. So this is uh, for those of you who made it onto the call, you'll get a, a peek at all of this. And uh, we're hoping that you will um, find it sufficiently compelling to uh, consider it in your reporting. Um, but Shauna? Thank you, thank you, Dr. Minna. Uh, Nicole, uh, can you give me screen sharing? I did, I accidentally made you the host. So after okay, you're done, if you can revert me back, back to the host, that'd be great. And sorry, yeah. let me just um, butt in for one second. Shauna is, um, has been uh, helping in a in a very serious way, uh, me over the over the last six or maybe more months now, I suppose, on policy uh, and all things regarding policy and and uh, as we uh, I, I think many of you know that we've uh, talked a lot with Congress and senators and the White House and many other folks, governors, and uh, Shauna has been behind the scenes helping uh, just a, an academic like me navigate all of that stuff. So. Uh, Shauna. Thank you. We, we recently partnered with the COVID Collaborative, which as uh, Dr. Minna said, is a national organization of health policy and economic experts uh, focused on a united action to end the pandemic. And uh, we asked COVID Collaborative and their research arm, Heart Research, to conduct a first of its kind national public opinion survey on at-home testing and venue-based rapid testing uh, because, as you know, we've, we've been speculating that uh, this is a, of high consumer demand for a long time. Um, but we thought it was time to inform policymakers on that consumer demand, especially as 
we're currently speaking, Congress is contemplating a sizable $46 billion investment in testing, and the Biden administration has identified at-home rapid testing as a priority. And although we're still waiting on a national rapid testing strategy uh, to be announced and to be put forward, we think that this is an important uh, step in informing uh, the Biden administration about consumer demand. What we learned first and foremost, and this is not a surprise, but that uh, Americans are, are still recognizing the continued threat of COVID-19. and. Um, but testing, however, testing is viewed just as importantly as masks, distancing, and vaccines. However, the current testing infrastructure is clearly not working. Uh, we were pretty surprised to see that 64% of Americans have never been tested for COVID-19, and a major and a and a sizable amount uh, would have uh, trouble getting tested. But once they are informed about that there's a convenient way to test themselves at home, 86% uh, of Americans are willing and eager to use rapid at-home tests. And another interesting fact here though, is that only 36% of Americans had ever heard of a rapid antigen test. So even though we're talking about this issue every day, uh, this is still a fringe issue. And so the in in education is important, but once they are informed, there is clear support for a national testing program. But the support does not come at any price. The, the willingness for people to test at home decreases as the price of the test increases. And this is really important because even though a majority of people support the idea of testing regularly, if the test costs $25 or more, which is in fact the price of the, the only EUA authorized at-home tests, only 33% of Americans would test themselves regularly. Whereas if these tests were between one and $5, which we know they can be produced for and, and distributed for, we have a much higher rate of adoption. And as we know, the more people use these tests, the more effective they will be. Entrance screening is a concept that Dr. Minna has been discussing for a while as a really uh, effective tool to complement the at-home testing. And while we know there may be some logistical hurdles at first, a strong majority of Americans approve of the use of rapid antigen tests to reopen schools, travel, sports venues, offices, public transit, retail, restaurants. These, these tests, people understand, will make venues safer and that will lead to greater economic activity. And I wanna mention in, in case folks uh, didn't hear about this yet, but the state of New York just a few days ago announced uh, a new rapid testing initiative called New York Forward that is aimed to uh, build consumer confidence with rapid, uh, rapid testing centers all across the state um, and using rapid testing to get into certain venues. We, we also see very strong bipartisan support. And this is something we've known for a while because of all the congressional outreach we've done, but the American public um, across the board of all political ideologies uh, are also uh, demonstrating their support. And, and we are currently calling on com Congress to allocate at least 20 billion of the 46 billion in testing dollars to a national rapid testing program. 
And like we saw with the price slide, 85% of Americans want the government to fund these tests and distribute them. So there is a, a huge opportunity here for the government to lead and for and people will be willing and, and grateful to receive, you know, less expensive tests, uh, whether it's at their home or in a venue, and, and they want the government to be um, funding those tests. Lastly, uh, one of the biggest hurdles that in our efforts in, in all the in all the work we've been doing um, with the White House and with um, various uh, public agencies, one of the biggest hurdles is uh, around reporting. And many of you ask about reporting a lot. Um, public health authorities, you know, understandably are worried that they'll lose track of case counts, they won't be able to sufficiently contact trace if everyone is just using these tests in their homes. However, a large majority of Americans say that they will report their positive result. Um, and as you can see here, privacy matters. Uh, reporting directly to the doctor is their preference, um, but there's a lot of options that based on probably their comfort level with technology and, and where, you know, how, how they communicate, that there's a lot of different options for them to report. So these were just a few slides um, that we thought captured uh, the most interesting findings and the, the most relevant findings, especially as Congress decides on funding for testing and the White House continues to develop a, a national strategy. Uh, the full report is linked in the chat and it is our hope that this is something you will continue to cover. We, we think that this is a, a really important um, part of the story because it now demonstrates that even though, the, even though these tests are not available to the general public, we can talk a little bit more about some of those hurdles today, but that people really want them and people understand um, how they can play a role in their lives. So, uh, so that's just some of the survey data uh, about uh, what Americans are thinking right now about these. And so a lot of people will ask, well, vaccines are on the way. Why do we need uh, these tests? Um, and uh, that, that, that's a longer, uh, slightly longer uh, answer than I'm going to give at the moment. But uh, essentially, these tests will support uh, the vaccines. The last thing that we want to do is sort of what we're doing, which is rolling out a vaccine when cases were sky high. Thankfully, um, seasonality and probably some hurt effects uh, from immunity from pre-existing infections uh, are really bringing cases down uh, rapidly. But, uh, but we know that uh, the economy is going to continue being uh, held up as a result of this pandemic. We're not going to go back to normal tomorrow. We're not gonna go back to normal this summer. And we will see blips and outbreaks uh, continue to occur. We'll see schools continue to be nervous about opening up uh, and any number of other things, uh, uh, environments where, uh, where individuals will congregate, um, airports, just all, all sorts of things um, will not go back to normal anytime soon. And these tests are a way to accelerate all of that. It's, it's a way to accelerate uh, reopening the economy in a much, much more substantial way. Uh, so they they are still um, they are still needed now, and they're probably going to be needed when cases reemerge and we have another surge in the fall. Despite vaccines, uh, uh, we will likely have another surge in the fall. And uh, and so uh, it's important to note that the tests do exist today. They're not authorized. The FDA is holding many applications up. 
uh, millions and millions and millions of tests per day could be available today, uh, except that the FDA is sitting on, on the applications, uh, many of which I've looked at, and the applications are stellar. There's absolutely no reason for an inexpensive 3 or $4 test to be uh, being outright rejected by the FDA right now, or just uh, sitting in a queue for many months. Um, it's no longer it's no longer normal times at the FDA. They, there's uh, it, it's um, uh, they're just being they're being held up there for unknown reasons. And um, uh, you know, I, I think that it's incredibly important to recognize this that these applications by these companies have been in since the fall. Had we had these tests out uh, towards the end of last summer, we could have potentially mitigated much of the devastation that we have seen uh, over the over the fall and winter uh, and you know had the had they actually been available we could have potentially prevented huge numbers of outbreaks and hundreds of thousands of deaths uh, so it's very very unfortunate when our regulatory agency uh, is uh, which is meant to help protect americans is really at the center of uh, preventing americans from getting tools that will help limit the spread of, of an infection like SARS-CoV-2 and uh, COVID-19. So um, I, I want to also mention that uh, Stephen Phillips is on, uh, and he is uh, one of the scientific leads at the COVID Collaborative, uh, which again has been uh, a, a, a mainstay uh, of scientists and policymakers and other influential thinkers uh, surrounding this pandemic for a long time. Uh, and uh, it's actually headed up uh, in part by, by the Dean at the Harvard School of Public Health, as well as many other uh, individuals. And um, so if there's questions about the COVID Collaborative uh, and the survey, uh, otherwise, uh, we, I'm also happy to take uh, any routine questions you might have. Thanks, Dr. Minna. Um, if I'm going to ask you first if you're going to be, have a question about the COVID Collaborative. If you do, fantastic. If not, we'll come back to you in a couple of minutes. Uh, first question. Hi, thanks so much. Can you hear me? Yeah. Great, thanks. Yeah, Dr. Min, I wanted to ask you specifically about, about the rapid testing. I uh, saw your tweet thread about this yesterday um, and just wanted to, to follow up on what you said there and, and just what you said now about the FDA. I mean, is it that, does the FDA have a reason that they're holding this up that we just don't know? Are there concerns about test accuracy um, or um, is, is there something else going on? Um, I have to be careful what I say right now. Um, um, I, I, I honestly can't answer the question without starting to fume. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they're, they're simply not uh, authorizing certain tests. They have authorized uh, some and others are just, uh, and that was months ago, and they're just not moving on, on others. Uh, they don't give a good reason. Um, I can say that there's one company that can produce quite literally millions uh, per day, an American company. They can make them uh, in the United States. And um, this is a company that's producing uh, the majority of tests for the UK. And uh, we have evaluated the test uh, ourselves and it is looking uh, the metrics are excellent, as, as good uh, as the Binex now, and better than uh, most all of the other rapid tests that we've evaluated. And, uh, and this particular test was just outright rejected by the FDA and said that it was not a priority uh, type of test. 
And uh, you know how when we when testing uh, and that was that was months ago. So how when testing has been continued to be front page news in terms of the limitation and the long delays of testing that have especially happened throughout the winter, the FDA uh, took a stance and said that the test that can produce tens of millions uh, per week and many millions per day is just not of interest in this pandemic. It just doesn't smell right, as far as I'm concerned. Um, there is no good reason at the moment uh, for why they're not authorizing them, uh, but they're not. They're just, it's been months since any of them were authorized. The only one authorized that's really scalable is the Binex now, and, and we know that that's been authorized for many months. Um, there are numerous companies just trying to get an EUA for symptomatic use, no less over-the-counter asymptomatic use. And um, uh, to be honest, I, I cannot understand their thinking. I've looked at the data. The data meets every criteria that they've laid out. Uh, so why they're picking some companies and not others. And in particular, they're, they're picking uh, a couple companies and, and really leaving all, all the others either in the queue for months and months now, or uh, or just not author or just rejecting the application outright, in the in the case of the test that can scale by far the most, uh, frankly, is is um, uh, disappointing to say it in the most mild uh, way. Just just a couple quick follow ups, if I could. Two companies that you mentioned in your tweets yesterday are E twenty five Bio and Thermo Fisher, both of which are local to us here, and I'm just wondering if you could speak to you know. It where they're at with these rapid tests and um, how effective you've seen their tests to be and what their status is? Uh, well, um, uh, they're, they're, uh, all of these tests are, are very, very similar to each other um, is the thing. Uh, some of them change, you know, they'll change a little bit. Uh, for example, Access Bio versus Binex Now versus Quidel QuickView. Those are the three that have been authorized. Um, Binex now is the only one that's really scaling in a, in a real way. Um, but even that, it's limited. Um, but E25 Bio and Thermo, you know, Thermo is one of the biggest bio uh, life sciences companies in the world. Um, it seems to me that if the, if the FDA were to get an application, now I, I do have to um, be clear, I'm, I'm almost certain that, that they have an application in uh, but I'll put that at 99%. Uh, I've spoken with them uh, a while ago about it. Um, but if that application is in, and I do believe it is, uh, to not bring that to the top of the pile and you know go through that application in a day, essentially, um, would be crazy. Uh, these tests are not complicated. The information around them is not complicated. They all, they all look like this. You know, they all look the same. Uh, and they have similar metrics. Uh, so you should be able to scan through the list uh, and be able to say, yep, nope, uh, you know, this isn't meeting uh, whatever criteria and, and reevaluate and get it out uh, in a week and not uh, be delaying and holding up the, uh, the uh, authorizations with unnecessary questions and then months delay and then another round of unnecessary questions and months delay, it just, uh, they seem to be running the, the, the companies in circles uh, from what I hear from many of these companies. I, I wanna be clear that Thermo is one company who has not uh, necessarily complained to me, uh, but they're a much more professional company than some of the uh, 
you know, than some of the smaller, the smaller companies that are trying to just get their products out uh, to the American public. Um, but uh, nevertheless, all of these are, are sort of, uh, in, they're all in the same boat right now. They're sitting in a queue waiting for a symptomatic claim, going nowhere. Just lastly, real quickly, if I could, just needed to confirm, uh, I've seen your involvement in rapidtests.org, um, and uh, this is something you've been pushing for. Just need to confirm that you don't have any disclosures related to rapid tests that uh, we should know. Nope, I just, uh, not about rapid antigen tests, the ones that I'm, that I'm really pushing for. I did just uh, start as an advisor for the company Detect, which is a molecular RNA test, uh, which is in a whole different boat, and I just, uh, I just started advising for them uh, last week. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question. Hello, good morning. Um, I have two questions for you. Um, the first about what's happening in New York State and the second about deaths. So if you wanna hold the second one until more general questions, that's fine. Um, as uh, Dr. Marina noted, uh, New York State started rolling out rapid antigen testing sites throughout the state in partnership with BioReference and they're using the Binax test. Um, the overall plan is to open 200 across the state, I was told. Um, you know, the point of these sites is to enable folks to test before eating dinner or going to the office or going to the movies or whatever, and the cost is $30. What do you think of that? And is this application the right one for using antigen tests? And are we capturing the right folks with that? Well, um, the application is correct. I mean, uh, if I had my druthers, it would be at home. And, uh, and it would be uh, very, very inexpensive for individuals and it would be frequent, period. Um, this is a, a really great step in the right direction uh, coming from uh, New York, in my opinion. Uh, the problem is that New York, like everywhere, is, is under the grip of the FDA and how the FDA is authorizing these tests and the policies of the United States at the moment. Uh, for example, uh, the FDA is requiring a test like the Binex now to be a prescription test. Nobody should need a prescription at this point in this pandemic. This, the prescription is making this test go from $5 to $25 for the, for the physician fee. So that means you have a company like eMed, which is the prescription provider for these, making ungodly amounts of dollars for, you know, barely, uh, you know, for, for taking care of a, a a, a fake prescription. The FDA is now in the business of eroding medicine. Uh, the FDA's um, formal stance, which they have published and discussed, uh, Tim Stenzel has discussed it, is that uh, people, uh, that, some, that one doctor can write a prescription for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people at once. That's not the appropriate use of a prescription. So by the FDA requiring that these tests be, be given prescription use and then having our own FDA <laughs> suggesting that doctors write prescriptions for tens of thousands of people at once is absurd. And it, and it is not in the practice of public health. It's in the practice of eroding a medical process that is in place for a reason. And so uh, in this case, all it's doing at this point in time in this pandemic is raising the cost of tests to the point where they are not accessible to most people. And frankly, eroding what it means to have a physician written prescription. And, you know, it's, it's absurd at this point. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, is, are there 
financial ties to EMED, I have no idea. Um, but um, but these tests should be three, four dollars max. You know, I think they should be one dollar or lower. Um, but they should not be prescription at this point. That is absurd. I think we all know that uh, that you know there is no useful use of the prescription at this point um, if you're going through one of these sites. So what we need to do, and what I think New York State should push, is to get these tests uh, at the very least in New York um, as true public health tests. Anyone should be able to walk up and screen themselves at this point. This should not be a medical, uh, an expensive medical process. Um, you know, so I, and, and then the other piece is, uh, I know that New York wants to scale to much higher numbers. They actually want to make these even more accessible, but they don't have access to the type of numbers of tests they need. Why? because the FDA is not authorizing more of these tests. They, the only one that's available is the Binex Now. We know that a company like Inova or others um, can scale to millions a day, whereas Binex Now for the whole country is making around a million and a half. Um, you know, so this, is, this all falls on the FDA at this point, um, in my opinion, and I, I, I've gotten more vocal about it because I, the more I look at the pieces, the only bottleneck in all of this is the FDA. And uh, I think it needs deep investigation of what's going wrong there and why, and a real question of why. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, but, but in any case, sorry, to go back to New York State, I think that they are doing the right thing. I think they are trying as hard as they can to do exactly what Shauna and myself and others are, have been talking about for months, uh, which is that these tests can reinvigorate, they can accelerate the reopening of America. New York State is recognizing that and trying as hard as they can to put the pieces in place with the very limited materials and, and tools that are available to them today. Uh, I would love to see these tools become much more available to any governor. We have spoken with governor after governor after governor, some who have wanted to, who have already put aside hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to purchase these tests and cannot purchase them uh, and use them and get them out to for free to their communities in their states because the FDA will not authorize them. And so, uh, so the states all want to do the right thing. For months now, I've been talking to governors, uh, you know, since last summer, who have been asking, how do we get these rapid tests out? How do we get them out? And, um, and we're still back exactly where we were in July and August. Governors do not have the tools. The White House does not have the tools. And all of it has to get bottlenecked through the FDA before these policy leaders can get the tools and actually plan around them. So New York is making a great stride forward, doing what they can with the tests available at the price point available. But um, it's very, very difficult for them to really create a, a public health program when they have to be paying prescription fees and they can only get access to, to thousands for a state like uh, thousands per day for a state like New York. Thank you um, for the thorough answer. Do you want to take the death question now or should we circle back? Um, I, I wanted to say one other thing, um, just as a point of reference for New York and what's happening there. Liverpool in the UK is, um, uh, they started in a similar way to what New York is doing. And now they've recognized through their, um, and, and really the UK at large, that was just the pilot was in Liverpool. Uh, they started in a very similar way with smaller sort of uh, scale. 
and uh, they have they are now scaling up. Boris Johnson uh, is really pushing uh, the tests into people's homes, uh, and is trying to do that for the whole of the UK, and actually using uh, using the tests that the FDA is just outright um, rejecting and failing to authorize. Um, but but the UK is actually moving forward with that. So I I think that you know I hope that this is just the first step in a in sort of a accelerated pathway to, to reopen the economy. I'm happy to take the other question you have. Thank you so much. Um, we see that the age distribution of COVID deaths has been pretty well cemented in place throughout the pandemic. Uh, this seems something of an obvious question, but do you think vaccines will change this? Why or why not? And if you do think we'll drive down deaths in the older populations, do you think we should be seeing evidence of that yet or will it take a while still? Um, Yes, I, I do, uh, of course, think that it will drive down deaths in the older populations, for sure. Um, uh, we will start seeing reductions in deaths in the United States pretty soon. We have had a gradual and slow rollout, but you know, at this point, it's accelerated pretty well. Um, and so we have large fractions of, of the uh, over 75 population who have now been vaccinated. Uh, I do think we should anticipate seeing uh, changing distribution of, of age of death of death rates across ages. Uh, we'll start seeing that certainly in the next month. It should become quite striking. Uh, that said, um, we will have to look at rates against each other. The, the cases are falling quickly, which I, uh, I attribute in large part to probably quite a significant amount of herd immunity that's already occurred and seasonal forces um, that are in our favor uh, quite considerably. Um, so cases are really coming down, uh, but certainly I think we should anticipate that the overall rate of mortality is going to plummet. Uh, uh, we know that children don't get uh, pretty don't get severe disease, uh, not in any frequent way. Anyway, of course, there's always the headlines of of this small number of children who do, but uh, for the most part, the mortality rate and the severe disease rate is extremely low in, in little kids. And it scales, of course, from there. And as we move, march down the age order, we're going to see the skew start to normalize and, and even out across, uh, across everyone. Uh, it still might be a little bit higher, of course, in older individuals. Vaccines also don't really work uh, long-term, especially in the, most, uh, in, the, in the oldest age categories. Uh, so we'll have to uh, monitor that closely and understand better, are these vaccines continuing to work after four or five, six months in the older age brackets. Um, we just don't really uh, uh, know how they're going to how, how they're going to work long term. All of the studies so far have just been in the very short term uh, over a number of months when sort of all of the energy of the vaccine is still persisting. Uh, so um, uh, I'm not sure if that answered the question. It did. Thank you very much. Uh, next question. Uh, keep hearing um, uh, reporting concerns or that people would mess up the tests and get bad results. Uh, how much of a role is that playing in not getting the green light from the FDA for these tests? Um, uh, the FDA's um, formal stance is that they are not assuming, uh, I mean, well, there's a couple answers. Um, they say that they do not uh, require reporting as part of their metrics. Um, they don't ask about it as part of their formal template. Um, so it shouldn't be uh, being a part of it. And for example, the Binex now doesn't 
doesn't have it. Um, Access Bio doesn't have recording built in. Uh, and so I, I don't see this as the reason. Uh, of course, I think some people, and then use these tests, they can't even, the, the companies can't even get physician prescribed um, uh, uh, use case authorization at this point. The FDA is just stalling all of it. So I don't think it's a use thing either. If this was an at home, if they were going immediately for at home, then uh, the use case has to be looked at a little bit more um, or how, how easy it is to use or not has to be looked at a little bit more um, with, with a little bit um, stronger eye towards that. But in general, at this case, it's, um, uh, I don't think it's playing a massive part. Uh, I know that people say it a lot and there's a lot of people who think that that's the reason why they're not getting authorized. Uh, it is part of, I would say the policy surrounding it. Uh, policy leaders are struggling to understand if these tests become widely available. Uh, how to ensure that they're getting enough data for public health. Uh, in general, um, it's actually sort of a, a moot point in some ways. Uh, we, can make we can make reporting voluntary. We can do that with third-party apps. We, there are so many ways to make that, to actually get much more public health data than we're currently getting. It's not hard to get more public health data. We've run around 350 million tests in this country. That's enough tests for every person in the country to have one test once essentially. So we have done very, very little testing uh, if our goal was really public health reporting, um, you know, in, in a real way. So I think, um, I think it's part of the policy decisions and what policymakers are struggling with, but from an FDA perspective, I don't believe that that is uh, playing a major role. I was going to follow up on that, but it sounds like it's moot. So we'll come back at a, at a later press conference when we're over this FDA hurdle, maybe. Sure. I mean, you can ask if you have another question about it. That's fine. Um, no, I'll, I'll, I'll let you move along. Next question. There. Um, so this is kind of on topic with what we have been all asking you, but I know you were consulting with the White House and you had the ear of policymakers. Did you have the opportunity to address your concerns with those leaders about the FDA and rapid tests? And if so, what kind of response did you get? Yeah, I want to be um, clear that con consulting, I've been um, more like in informally advising, I would call it. Um, uh, but uh, yes, we have discussed at length these issues. Um, I think rightly, the White House is in a position where um, uh, they want to make policy. And of course, Biden, you know, in day one said that he wanted to make policy surrounding rapid tests. They've, Congress has put aside $50 billion for it. Or, uh, and the White House has been on board with that. Um, but the White House is in a pretty tough position. It does not want to appear to be interfering with the FDA. Uh, you know, a lot of the people in the White House now spent the last few years trying to shield the FDA from the Trump administration. And so they don't want to, they're, they're a little bit stuck, I would say, uh, that uh, they don't want to have some appearance of trying to go around the FDA or push. And th this is just my, my view on this. Um, and I, I think that that is appropriate. Um, you know, is it the desired outcome during a pandemic? No. Um, but is it a slippery slope if you have an executive branch that really starts interfering significantly with the FDA? Um, you never know who the next president's going to be. And so um, do I think something should happen? You know, maybe maybe there's a 
you know, I, I think so, but I also understand if they're feeling, if the White House is feeling like its hands are tied on this front. The, the sad part of it though, is that uh, it's very clear that the White House wants to do something with these tests, but just doesn't have, similar to, to New York, uh, the, the White House doesn't have a lot to go with. They can only look around and say, what tests are actually available? And they look around and they say, well, very few. And so they can't even make policy to, on how to use these tests. The CDC can't make policy because everyone is deferential to the FDA. And so until the test gets an EUA at this point, the White House just can't act and they don't, and I, my feeling is that they don't want to um, intervene in any significant way that would appear that they're undermining the, um, the FDA's stance on these. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thank you for uh, doing this call. I am writing for clinicians specifically about what the role of testing is now as we move into the vaccine era. Um, I know that you've been an outspoken uh, supporter of the rapid tests, obviously, but um, what do you think, does that mean, do you think that means that the future of testing is outside of clinical, the clinical arena? Like what role do you think clinicians will be playing uh, going forward? Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think we're, we're in a new era. We're still playing by so many of the same rules that existed 70 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, everything uh, in the United still, States is still kept behind the barricade of the doctor. But why, if I'm a parent, why can't I, why am I not allowed to know that my kid has COVID? Why am I not allowed to know that my kid has adenovirus? Why can't I know for myself uh, that my blood sugar is at a certain level without a prescription. Um, you know, all of these things, I think we are in a, we're entering into a new phase um, where this paternalism of medicine, uh, at one point it had to exist. There wasn't enough information out in the world to the average person to be able to know what to do with this information. But now we have every single person, especially as software has gotten better, you know, every person has much more knowledge in their phone than any physician has in their head. Sifting through that is difficult, um, but uh, the, the way that people are using technology today is so different. Um, the uh, way that these tests, you know, this is, this is the test, uh, this test called Detect. The, the, this is, just to be clear, this is the company that I'm advising for now, um, but the reason that I'm advising for this company when I've said no to every other test company in the world is because this thing is so simple and scalable. And it is it, this little device has the power to tell some person in the future if their kid has flu or you know whatever, it, it can look for all sorts of things. And I really do want to see a world where we where people have access to testing. They don't have to go through hundreds of dollars of uh, physician bills and hassle with scheduling and everything just to know, you know, is my kid have the flu? Can I send them to school? It also doesn't even work if our goal is public health, you know, with infectious diseases, it should be. Um, having to go to the doctor's office and bring your kid there when they're sick is insane. You know, we have the tools now that could allow us to not have to do that. So I really do hope that if um, that one of the lasting 
effects of this pandemic is that uh, we will see a democratization of testing, uh, that people should be allowed to know what's happening with their body. You know, I'm allowed to feel my pulse. Uh, I'm allowed to check my temperature. I should be allowed to know what virus is causing my nose to be runny and if it's rhinovirus or if it's SARS-CoV-2 in the future. And um, uh, I, I really do hope that we start to see a, a change in this way and we, we move away from this paternalistic medical approach and we somehow figure out a better medium. But there is a massive amount of money in medicine and, and the regulators generally are doctors uh, and uh, control uh, is a major thing and, and money is a major thing. And so um, I, I just, I, I would like to see all this stuff be free, frankly, but you know, short of that, I, I hope that we can at least remove people like me from the equation so that we're not marking up, you know, the, the bills in hospitals and laboratories is something like 40 fold, not 40%. The average markup is 40 fold of a, of a test. That's criminal. You know, it's bankrupting us as an economy. And so um, I would like to see that change. Quick follow up. Um, these are amazing visions for the future, but as things stand now, testing still hasn't really ramped up to where it needs to be. So I'm curious, like, what your feeling is about how the rollout of vaccines might be impacting capacity for actual testing until these self-tests get out there in a more broad way. Yeah, so as vaccines are rolling out, um, uh, testing will still be needed uh, to know, you know, for, for a long time now, people are going to be wondering, you know, what's causing my illness? Am I safe to go see grandma? Am I safe, even if grandma's been vaccinated? Um, there is going to be a lot of fear there's going to be new mutants that come about. Uh, so there's a few different roles for testing. Uh, for clinical diagnostic testing, meaning the type of testing that is through a physician, that's not going away. That won't go away. That's, you know, at least, you know, like I just said, I want it to go away. But uh, in any time soon, uh, when people are sick, they're going to need to go get a, a COVID test and a flu test. They're going to still be asked to stay home from, from work, uh, even when a lot of people are vaccinated. Uh, so medical testing isn't going away. The public health testing is, a, is uh, I think, still needed, even upon, uh, uh, even as vaccines are being rolled out. Schools are need to get going again. Um, businesses need to open, and with vaccines, I think we're still going to see a very long delay before businesses can reopen fully. And then, come fall, I think we're going to see a resurgence of cases again. Uh, even with the vaccine, uh, I, I think uh, we will probably see that spread continues. Ideally, in the fall, we'll have enough people immunized, and with some, even if their their immuno, uh, immunological response has waned by then. You know, my my concern is that the older people got vaccinated first; they have the lowest retention of immunological memory, and so when we get to the fall and seasonality causes cases to go up again, we might end up seeing again uh, a large increases in transmission and some people will be vulnerable uh, once again to disease. I hope that it doesn't cause economic shutdown again. That would be terrible. Um, but I think we're going to be on edge as a society for quite some time. And uh, in, in that sense, I think that these tests can just make everything safer. You, have, uh, you can have them as a backstop as we 
uh, see blipton as we see new outbreaks start to emerge in a community, even a community that's been largely vaccinated, we can have these, what I'd like to see is for these types of simple, simple tests, just be in people's homes. They don't have to be using them twice a week when there's very few cases, but then uh, maybe cases start to emerge again, even in a vaccine era, and people can get a text message that says, hey, there's cases in your community, start testing your kid or, or yourself twice a week. Uh, for the next three weeks, and we'll keep our way below one and, and stop that outbreak from even emerging. This becomes even more important as we see uh, new variants that we're still not sure of what exact role they're going to play. Uh, my personal feeling is that most of the variants will still be largely, uh, you'll still be protected through the vaccine-derived immunity or pre-existing infection-derived immunity, but um, but we just, we don't actually know how long that will last. As we start vaccinating millions and millions of people, we run a risk of, of a viral uh, mutant strain just really being able to become invisible to the immune system. Uh, you know, we all hope that that doesn't happen. Um, but should it happen, we want backstops. Uh, we, we need backstops, really. We, we can't go through another year of this. And cases are still going to be transmitting wildly throughout the world. Uh, even if they're not in the United States. And so um, so we, this, this is a backstop. If, if a strain comes out that is going to evade the immune system in any significant way, this is an inexpensive tool that the US government could scale up and just have out for the American public so that if a new outbreak starts to emerge or if a new epidemic starts to emerge in US soil, uh, we can have these uh, and be able to pick them up quickly even uh, in the vaccine era, if new mutant strains come around uh, or if people's immune systems just start to wane. Great, thank you so much. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much for taking my question. Um, we have a local study out by a hospital group that is forecasting that Dallas County is going to reach herd immunity by late June. And I was wondering if you could comment on whether it's meaningful at, at all, you know, how meaningful is it to project herd immunity for a county? And then what questions I should be asking them about their, their methodology? The methodology, it's, it's based on a, a model of how many people have recovered from COVID-19, as well as how rapidly vaccinations are scaling up. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we have to, herd immunity isn't a, it's a, a, it's a fluid state, I would say. Um, herd immunity is just like our own immunity. It comes and then it can go uh, if people are no longer uh, immune and immunity wanes, for example. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's not just reaching herd immunity. Um, every new infection that happens and every new immune person uh, adds and builds up the, to the amount of population level immunity that exists. Uh, eventually you get to a threshold at which the R value of the virus goes below one and you start to see reducing cases. Um, if seasonality means that cases are already below one, then it's, it's a different kind of, uh, then you're already kind of at herd immunity between the combination of uh, already infected people and, uh, and um, seasonality, for example. And so in many ways, we're already seeing in the United States, the, the drop in cases, the precipitous drop uh, probably to me reflects that we have uh, for the season, given the beta, given the, the, the force of infection right now and the seasonal force of infection at the moment, 
uh, I believe that the US uh, has effectively achieved some level of herd immunity. Is it the complete threshold? No, but I do think that somewhere probably over 150 million people have likely been infected. And I put that as a low estimate. Uh, you know, that sounds like a crazy high estimate, 150 million, uh, but we have 30 million people who have been uh, diagnosed as having COVID. And I do not believe for a moment that we have caught one in five uh, infections. That would be pretty extraordinary given the, the testing woes and given that we've only had enough tests for every American to have one uh, throughout the year um, is how many tests we've performed. So, you know, when we assume that we've probably had less than one in five cases detected and we already have 30 million people who are known to have been infected, that already puts us up at almost 50% as a, almost a low bar for how many people in America have been infected. And we've barely tested the kids and adolescents. So that's like not even counting this whole other part of the population. Uh, so that's just to say that I think um, we are uh, probably achieving herd effects uh, already. And, um, but does it necessarily change how we're viewing all of this? I would say no, because again, herd effects and the herd immunity threshold is a feature of your environment, of the, of the seasonal patterns and where you are in the seasonality. And for example, even if we were at very high herd, of herd immunity right now, come fall, I worry that we won't be again. You know, come fall, we'll end up seeing surges in cases because of seasonal um, forcing not being in our favor, uh, waning immunity. And then we, we are really going to want the people who are getting vaccinated to get vaccinated now. But at the moment, I think, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we will largely see a reprieve from this virus from now that will hopefully last through the summer. I don't think cases are going away. Um, cases are going to unfortunately stay stable probably at, at that, tens of thousands a, a day. Um, but mortality will hopefully decline. Cases will stay stable before they rise again uh, in the fall. But I do think we should use this as an opportunity to get as many people vaccinated uh, as possible. Just one quick follow-up. I mean, does it is it meaningful at all for readers to understand when their local county will reach herd immunity, you know, given people's mo mobility? Does it make sense to track it at the county level as this group is doing? Um, I mean, people live locally. And, and if you can say that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in an area where, um, if your county is uh, at such a high threshold for immunity that, uh, that the virus is unlikely to persist in your county, uh, I think that's important, but it's really, really important for people to understand what is herd immunity. It doesn't mean that you can't get infected anymore. If your neighbors are all immune, it doesn't mean somebody who is infected can't come and infect you. And so, um, so I think it matters only to the extent that uh, it might, um, I think policy leaders and policymakers should be able to look at that uh, data and say, okay, you know, it's, uh, if, we are at, if we're truly at a herd immune threshold, and we are seeing uh, large reductions in cases and to the point where cases as in terms of outbreaks are really going to zero, uh, then that is meaningful in that it really does change the balance of what does it mean to stay open. If you can stay open and maybe every once in a while you have a blip of cases, but they all, uh, but they never turn into large outbreaks because you have so many people who are already immune that the, that the outbreak just can't sustain itself because you're at herd immunity 
then that is important, I think. Um, uh, but we have to remember that if it's just sort of countywide, and you know, I don't know exactly why this would happen, but let's see if one county that is up, 70% have already been infected, and another county has 30%, and you have a lot of cases happening over here still, you know, and there's transit between them, the 30% who haven't been immune, who are not immune yet over here can still certainly get sick when coming in contact. So we just have to keep in mind that herd immunity isn't like our own immunity and that um, it can really protect those who are not, uh, it can't do anything to really protect those who are not immune already individually when they come in touch with uh, somebody who is infected, infectious. Thank you. Hi, my computer, my connection just slowed down for, for a second. Um, I think that's the last question we have. Dr. Minna, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before we go? Um, not at the moment. Um, I, I think uh, I'm excited to see the vaccines being rolled out. I really would like to see, um, I would really like to see uh, the economy open up more rapidly. I want people to feel safer and, and I, I do hope that uh, we get the, the delays uh, for now and for our future uh, worked out from an FDA perspective for these tests. Um, but certainly if you have questions about the survey or, or any of the, the things we covered, you can email us directly um, uh, if you'd like. And um, Shauna, I don't know if you or Stephen want to put your uh, emails in. Stephen, you have a, a, something you want to say? Yeah, if I could just add a, a couple things. Uh, Dr. Amina, on the behalf of the COVID Collaborative, uh, I think we are looking for very leverageable interventions that could end the pandemic sooner and also reopen the economy and our dynamic uh, culture. And uh, we had the good fortune of discovering Dr. Amina about eight months ago. And, um, our sense is that there are two approaches to deriving the benefits of rapid tests. I think as a product profile, uh, doctors Mina and, and uh, Marino have demonstrated, I think repeatedly in a variety of forums and a variety of scientific journals that this is a better mousetrap. The rapid test has a product profile that if it wasn't invented, should be. And I think there are, there are two ways of uh, massively uh, scaling rapid tests nationally to the level that is required for the public good effects, the contributions to herd immunity effects that Dr. Amina was just uh, discussing. One is what I would call product push, which is keep beating on the qualities of the rapid tests that are so desirable, so unique and so complementary to both the PCR medical diagnostic testing and also to a massively scaled up vaccine rollout. So that's the product push. Uh, at the COVID Collaborative, we kind of imagineer what the market pull would look like. And we really believe that the, the business sector is gonna be incentivized and see value in this on their own, whether or not these various technical and regulatory obstacles are overcome. And the other is that this is tailor-made for a federal program. It has almost all the characteristics of uh, the vaccine program in terms of end-to-end -end management of the supply chain. So that's where we're 
placing our emphasis and just so happy to be part of this uh, session now. And uh, we, we are gonna continue to work with Dr. Mina and, and support his activities to bring it to scale if possible. This concludes the February 24th press conference.